0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, thanks, Wes, and good morning,
1: everybody. Great to see you here uh, this morning. You know, I have to begin this morning by uh, saying that this has been a really difficult week, I think, for many of us that have seen the events that have been happening in Ukraine. Um, I struggle in some ways to put my feelings and my reactions into words, but the words that come to mind are just unbelievable and heartbreaking. Um, as we've seen, some of the, so many of us have seen the images and the videos that have come out um, that have shown everything from family members having to say goodbye to one another, not knowing whether they're gonna see one another again, um, to citizens having to grab, grab up arms and fight against a trained professional military that's advancing on their city. Uh, on their cities, the things that have come from, uh, from the past few days and the events that have coming out of Ukraine are just heartbreaking. And I think for many of us, we probably have a very similar reaction. Uh, there's a question of why, why all this is happening, and then there's joined by the, action, by the reaction of anger, maybe uncertainty and fear about what may be happening next. I think all those things are natural to feel One of the things that came to mind this week for me, and I couldn't help thinking about how timely it is that we are actually in the study that we are in right now, because it helped me, because because we are in the book of Revelation, it really helped me to process a couple of things that I think are true about what we are seeing and how it reflects the world and what God is doing and how God is actually working behind the scenes, and I think, you know. I'm not trying to be an alarmist in saying oh, that the invasion of Ukraine is gonna lead to the end of the world as we know it, but I think it does remind us of a couple of main themes that we see in the book of Revelation that actually give us hope and insight and understanding and wisdom into, what, uh, in, into how we're supposed to respond and how we're supposed to see God working in all of this. I think one is it reminds us of just how fragile and broken this world really is. That one person can decide to unleash tens of thousands of soldiers on, an, on a nation threatening to kill tens and thousands of citizens all at once, where people are in danger of losing their lives, and of course, in imminent danger of losing their lives, and of course, forces the rest of the world to ask, what's next? And you hear many people talking about, is World War III next? What exactly is going to happen? How are things going to develop over the days and weeks and months to come? Uh, two is just how unjust and how evil this world can be. You know, we have 7 billion people, over 7 billion people in this world, the majority of them who would, would not invade Ukraine if they were in charge of Russia. In fact, a lot of those who are in Russia right now uh, seem to not want this aggression. So how is it often that the guys who are the most power-hungry and greedy and violent end up with the most power in the world? I think about the cries from the psalmists in the scriptures which say, Oh Lord, how long will the evil prosper? How long will the evil continue to have their way in the world and what they do? How is it that the violent and the greedy end up leading nations and having so much influence and impact in the world? Why is it that the worst guys often seem to succeed the most? And I don't know all the answers to those questions, but I think another thing that followed as I thought more about this is that some of the words of Jesus came to mind specifically from Matthew chapter 24, which I think helps bring some answers to some of these questions and some understanding to the hope that we have. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse 3, it says this, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will all these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And as Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." And this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. There's a lot Jesus says in there, but I want us to focus on a few things. First of all, it's obvious that the disciples had come to Jesus and they were asking him, when exactly is all of this that you're saying is going to take place? When is your kingdom going to come in full effect in this world? I think there are many people asking that question even today, especially brothers and sisters of ours in Ukraine right now. Lord, when and how long must we endure all that's going on. And there's a couple of things to focus on in this. The, the word end is the word that is the Greek word telos and that word means goal or purpose or arrival. When we read end we tend to think this is the this is the end of it all. It's all going to be blown up. Wars and famines are going to have their way and in the end it's all just going to be destroyed. But what Jesus is saying ultimately is that God is bringing this to a telos, a purpose and end, a goal and arrival place. And so in the midst of wars and famines and all these things that may look like God is not in control and that God is not paying attention and that God doesn't care, what Jesus is saying is that in the midst of this, hold on, because the end is coming. God is bringing it all to his end goal and he is bringing it all to a place ultimately that he needs to bring it to so that we can be freed of this evil world and this broken world can be made whole again. And I think as we look at this, instead of When we see all that's playing out in human history, especially like what we've seen over this past week, we realize that these things do not surprise God. Jesus Jesus predicted it 2,000 years ago. He saw it coming, he knew it was coming, and he knows that it will continue to come in its various forms throughout human history. Shows in the end that God is in control and he is bringing it all to an end. The wars, the famines, the dictators, the evil in this world will not have the final say, but our King Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace and the Savior of the world, will have the final say in terms of how this all goes down. And when you take what Jesus says here in Matthew 24, and then you overlay it with what we're seeing in Revelation, I think what we see is Jesus is saying the much, much the same thing that Revelation is saying to us here is that Revelation, as we've talked about through this series, is like God pulling back the curtain of human history and helping us to see from his perspective what he is doing in the world. Because when we look at the world, it may look like one thing, wars, famine, disease, and all the rest, but when we see it from God's perspective, what this looks like is that God is bringing it according to his good and perfect plan. And although we may not understand it, we're called to trust in it and to see that in the end, that God's words are evidence to the fact that judgment is coming On the broken and evil things of this world, and that when that judgment comes, it ushers in the victory of Jesus for this world and for us for eternity. We have uh, seen this kind of reality play out where, you know, this world can be so fragile from one day to the next, right? Think about this one, one day, the world can be all sunshine and rainbows, and then the next day, it can be hell on earth. And that's literally happened for many people in Ukraine right now. Think about how one day, maybe this past week, Ukrainian citizens were making breakfast for their children in their kitchens and getting ready to go off to their office jobs and send their kids off to school. And the very next day, they're having to load their families onto trains, not knowing if they're ever going to see them again. And they're told to use their kitchens to make Molotov cocktails. And instead of going into their jobs, they're to find assault rifles and try to defend themselves against an advancing professional resourced military force. It's an impossible situation, and yet it reminds us again of how the world is so fragile and broken. And this morning as we continue our series in Revelation 17, we get to see more of the effects of the good news of the victory of Jesus. There is hope in this passage. We read through it, it may not, again, like many of the passages that we've read through Revelation, you hear me you keep hearing me say over and over again, this is a book full of hope, and then we read through it, and it's like, how is that hope? Well, this is going to happen again, I'm warning you ahead of time in Revelation 17. But one of the things that we see here is that Revelation 17, through the rest of the book, Revelation 22, five chapters, is a close-up, is a, is a, close a drill-down basically on the final judgment aspect of, of God, that final judgment of God promising that He will remove all sin and evil for the earth and make way for the victory of Jesus to come. that is the hope that, we, that, we, that that we look forward to that is the hope that we ground ourselves in that is the hope that is the substance of our faith. Not that God just sees it and that God is just with us in the midst of it, but that God is doing something to remove it permanently from this world and that God is saving us. Ultimately and completely from our sin to bring him to himself and we see that over the next five chapters starting here in Revelation chapter 17. You're going to see John actually talk about there is one of the seven angels from the bull judgments which is what we looked at last week in Revelation 16 comes to him and gives him this vision. Right? And we're meant to understand the connection to the last judgment as it pours into Revelation 17 when we see that. And although this vision kind of moves in a couple of different ways, we're gonna explain the two parts of this vision. Ultimately, one thing that we need to see is that it has to do with the hope of final judgment and what God is doing to bring it all to a place that speaks loudly the fact that God is not asleep at the wheel, that God is active and he is moving everything forward. Because if our hope doesn't speak to something like we see in Ukraine right now. What good is the hope that we find ourselves in? What good is the hope that we trust in? But fortunately and, 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 hopeful, and, and joyfully it does. So as we get into chapter 17, and over the next couple chapters, their focus is again on the final judgment, but we're gonna see this new character emerge, and this new character is what is known as the prostitute or the harlot. She's also called Babylon. And so we actually have a symbol within a symbol, and so as difficult as interpreting symbols and images have been to this point in the book of Revelation, this case we actually get a symbol within a symbol, and we get to interpret both of them together. So this is gonna be a lot of fun as we get into <laughs> Revelation chapter 17. But as we look at this, I, want, I didn't want you to be taken off guard by these, but that's where we're going as this chapter kind of presents us with this new focus. And this focus is on the hope, this focus is on final judgment, and why it is that final judgment, the final judgment of God brings us Hope. So with that being said, Revelation chapter 17 says this. This is John in verse one. He says, "Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, "Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness." And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations." And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I greatly marveled. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and they are also the seven kings, five of whom is fallen. One is, and another is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction." And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over power and authority to the beast. And they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes and languages and nations." And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the, man, and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay, so a lot there. Uh, to unpack, obviously, but I want to start by this. I- I'll tell you this, that the key to understanding this is, gr- is rooting it in its historical context. We're going to talk about that a little bit in terms of how the first century church would have understood that. Uh, all of this together, the message of what we see in Revelation 17. But before we do that, I want to talk about the imagery that we see. And it starts from the very beginning, and what we see, again, is the beast show up, this time with... The, a prostitute who is riding on who is on top of him, right? And on, on, they're over kind of these, these, these waters that are coming. And what this pictures for us, we've talked about before how the beast uses his influence in the world through the political, economic, social, and even religious systems to assert his power and influence and deception in the world, right? And with the woman there, this woman highlights really the economic influence of the beast, the many waters that she sits on represent the peoples and nations of the earth. It also represents kind of the sea trade and commerce of the ancient world. And so what we see here is a representation of the fact that the woman and her influence is representative of commercial trade and economic, uh, economic kind of greediness and economic uh, well-being, Right? And so the reference to sexual immorality is not literally the act of sexual immorality here. When it says that the kings with her commit sexual immorality, what it's essentially saying is that the kings have joined with her in the business of what she does, which is the economic impact that she has in the world. So there's also a political political influence in here as well as the kings and kingdoms join with her in that. And there are two groups, of course, that are mentioned as being influenced by this woman. The first one, of course, is the kings and kingdoms of the world. And by the way, both of these are groups of those who are, who are the, the, kind of the, the subjects of the seven bull judgments from the previous chapter. And they have to do with the kings and kingdoms of this world and the earth dwellers, those who have found their hope and their home in this world. In other words, those who are not a part of the lamb and his people. So you've got the kings and kingdoms and then you've got the earth dwellers. The kings and kingdoms are said to be joined with uh, with the woman, and then the earth dwellers experience intoxication that comes from the wine of the sexual immorality between the kings and this woman. Of course, this is not a reference, of course, to drinking alcohol specifically here, but it's about the intoxicating effects of joining with the prostitute's economic influence and power in the world. So all this, as you put it together, is about the intoxicating effect of having power and wealth in this world, and that effect is on the people who are described as earth dwellers. It's the way that the beast uses to grab the uh, attention, the hearts, and the affection and the devotion of people in the world by using economic, uh, by using the economy and using power and that kind of thing, by using the temptation of greed and power in the world. And if you ever wonder what causes people to ignore the idea of eternity, I've thought about this before. Like, What is it that just causes people to think to themselves, there's no eternity, there's no God, there's no life behind this. I've always had a need to know that. I don't know if that's just me or God's put that in me. Augustine also talks about the fact that all of us as human beings have this God-sized hole in our heart where we have a need to know something beyond just ourselves, yet we have a tendency to fill it with all kinds of things in this world. How is it that it's so easy for people to fill those, their heart with all these kinds of things? I think this explanation here is really vivid in that sense. John is, telling us that, uh, John is telling us ultimately that the lust for power and the love of wealth can have an intoxicating effect on human beings. It affects kings and causes them to do some of the worst things that, in order to keep and maintain their power and expand their power. It affects people, everyday people, in such a way because the allure of worldly wealth causes us to compromise and sacrifice things that we never thought that we would sacrifice, just for a little bit more money, just for a few more things, just for a little bit more security. It's a picture of the intoxication of wealth and power in this world, being drunk with it literally so that it numbs us to what is real and causes us to do things that we wouldn't normally do, just like being drunk with wine. It numbs you and then causes you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. And the way the prostitute is described here gives both a window into the temptation, but also then the devastation that she represents. The first thing that John sees is this beautiful picture of a woman who is wearing some of the finest clothes that you can buy. Uh, Purple and scarlet were some of the most expensive dyes in the ancient world. In fact, they were so expensive that they were reserved basically for royalty and those who were basically the super rich, right? The uber rich. And she's adorned in all this scarlet and purple clothing, and then on top of that, she's got precious stones and gold that's that's adorning her, and 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 it's this beautiful picture of this woman who lives in or this woman who is a result of uh, who represents opulence and riches and comfort and luxury in this world, and she's holding a golden cup in her hand as well, but at the same time, there is then, as John looks a little bit closer, this juxtaposition with this woman who has who is adorned in all these beautiful things and then is someone who is anything but beautiful. She's downright murderous and dangerous because her golden cup contains abominations. She has Babylon written on her forehead, and she's drunk with the blood of Jesus' followers. A pretty scary, dangerous image. And what we have in the first part is a description of this woman and the effects of of this woman and her intoxication of people along with the true identity of what she represents in the end. As things, you know, we've seen things We've seen situations where things have been written on the foreheads of people before in the book of Revelation. If we go all the way back to Revelation 5, we see that those who are sealed by the Lamb have the name of Jesus written on their forehead. If We go back a couple chapters ago, we saw the mark of the beast, that the beast was written on the foreheads of those who have the mark of the beast. And in this case, we have Babylon written on the woman's forehead in this vision. And in each case, the forehead represents, what's written on the forehead represents identity and represents the character and the nature, really, of the given subject. And so when we see Babylon written on this woman's forehead, it speaks volumes to who who she is and ultimately what her character and her aims and goals are all about. And the word Babylon might not mean much to us, but if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and in particular the history of Israel, Dating, it dates back to the Old Testament when Babylon was the leading empire in the world. Uh, according to God uh, he, and through the prophets, we recognize that Babylon was an idolatrous nation It had a king who believed that he was divine and then all kinds of different pagan gods that were worshipped in Babylon. So it represents idolatry. Secondly, they were Israel's enemies. Babylon attacked and conquered Israel at one point and then took Israel out into captivity as slaves in exile. And third, they were a wealthy and powerful empire, one of the most wealthy and powerful empires of the ancient world, but they were notorious for gaining their wealth and power through evil and oppression and violence. And so since that time, Babylon has become synonymous with idolatry and opposition to God and opposition to God's people and a picture of idolatry and evil in the world. And so it's all bound up in the image of the prostitute here. And something, and, and people who are familiar with the history of this would have recognized this immediately. Hearing the word Babylon is kind of like hearing the word Nazi for us, right? It causes a reaction. Things immediately come to mind, and they're not good things when you hear that word and that reference. And so with Babylon written on her forehead, she's also ha- holding in her hand abominations, a word which, means, which refers to the words and the deeds that are seen as vile and evil and sinful and the things that God hates. And then she is described as someone who is drunk on the blood of Christian martyrs. This is full-scale idolatry and evil that she represents. And as it's presented here, she represents, along with the beast, uh, along with the beast, uh, deception and allurement towards those who she encounters. Now, what is interesting here, I think, in all of this is, and, and really a warning to us as well, is John's immediate reaction. He records his immediate reaction to when he sees the woman. And I think it's kind of telling here. I think it's interesting. For me, it's kind of one of the most interesting parts of this vision. It says that he marvels greatly at what he has seen. Now, that word marvel can, can mean just in general astonishment, but it's most oftenly translated, not only astonishment, but wonderment and almost kind of like, um, uh, almost kind of a sense of amazement in, in a sense in which he's almost being tempted to really uh, be amazed and wondered by how beautiful this woman looks and how maybe alluring she seems. And when you put together the angel's response here, that kind of seems to be John's first reaction. I mean, the angel looks at him and says, why do you marvel at her? Let me tell you the truth about who she really is. But in the midst of this, I think what John is confessing to us is, is like, look, when I first saw her, even though I saw the full picture of what it all was, I gotta admit, the beauty of what she was was still so alluring to me. That side that promises so much was still so alluring to me. And it almost took the angel to snap me out of the spell that she put on me in order to see truth for what it was. And then beginning in verses 7 and 8, through the rest of the chapter, the angel then, this is the substance of the message, the angel then presents what he calls the mystery of the woman and the beast, and also the mystery, I would say, of the lamb as well. And there's a lot of things that he says in that, but I want to unpack just a few things that I think are important. First, the angel says to John, don't marvel at the woman or the beast, because if you do, it shows that you lack understanding into what is really going on. She is intoxicating because of what she provides. That's true. She provides it well, and she provides it in abundance. Things like wealth and money and comfort in this world. But in the end, all of that is deceptive. Because it so easily becomes idolatry. And when it does, it owns your heart. And once your heart is owned, the rest of you will follow. And once the rest of you follows and you are bound to her, you are joined to her destiny as well. It's intoxicating. It's like a drug. And like a drug, you have to keep going back to the source in order to feel that intoxication again. And it needs to be stronger the next time you go to it. And it becomes a pattern, a pattern of intoxicating um, bondage. Power, wealth, comfort, luxury, all the things that the world lusts after will bind you to the world and then bind you to her. The world marvels over these things, but the one who receives God's word will see the danger and the allure that is behind all of this in the end, that it's a trap and a deception that only produces death and destruction. Because secondly, if you are bonded to her, you are bound to her destiny. In the mystery, the angel proceeds to talk about the destiny of the woman and the beast. And it's not pretty for them in particular. But you read and what he says there is that she, the beast has come out of the bottomless pit. He's kind of risen out of that for a time. And then he goes down and he rises again. And there's even a reference to the eighth, which is a reference to a resurrection day. Um, There's a lot in that I want to fully unpack, but just trust me in that. reference to resurrection. So in other words, it looks like many times throughout history that the influence of the beast ebbs and flows, and then in the end it may look like in the end at some point that he is risen again and that there is all the power and authority that's been given to the beast. And from our perspective, it may look like this stretches out into eternity, that this is the way that things really are. But again, from God's perspective, we are told the beast only rules for a short time, And that the woman's influence is limited to one hour. In the ancient world, one hour was the smallest amount of time that somebody would refer to. And so it's like saying in modern day language, for just a moment. That she comes and she rules and influences for just a moment in light of eternity. That her influence and what she gives and what she provides is like a mist that's here today and gone the next moment. And then in the end, the eternal reality is explained in verse 16 that she ends up naked with her flesh devoured and burnt with fire. Finally, last thing the, the mystery shows us in this is that the objective of the woman and the beast is to make war against the lamb and his people, which is pictured by being drunk by the blood of the martyrs. You know, this story will remind us of Revelation chapter 12, if you were with us during that chapter. What we saw is this picture of the dragon, who is again presented here in this scene, chasing after the woman who represents God's people in the wilderness. And he's attacking her, and he's persecuting her, and he's doing it by, at least in that vision, by kind of spewing out water from his mouth. This is more of an explanation of like what that water looks like as he continues to attack God's people and continues to attack the church. Uh, continues to tempt us. It it represents the deception of the beast and the alluring nature of the prostitute who will try to deceive and and capture as many people as possible through access to power and wealth as one of those ways so that he can take more with him into destruction. And destruction will come for the woman and the beast in the end because as we're told triumphantly in verse 14 that Jesus is revealed as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That the slain, part of the mystery is that the slain lamb who gave his life on the cross is the one who is ultimately the king of kings and the Lord of lords who will reign in the end. So, now that we've kind of parsed through that vision, the question that we get to is kind of the same question that we get to every, every week at, at this place, which is, you know, okay, that's great. That's what that is. Now, what exactly does that have to do with us? How does that apply and how does that work in our lives? Well, I mentioned earlier that one of, the, one of the keys to understanding this vision in particular is understanding the original context that it was written in. So this letter was, as we've said, this book was prepared and written for the first century church. And I think as we see the connections to the images and the reality that the first century church was in at that place, we'll be able to make better connections to our situation today. So t- as a reminder, The first century church was living under Roman rule in the first century. And to live under Roman rule in the first century was to live under a regime that required you to literally worship the emperor if you were one of the citizens who lived in the empire. And it wasn't just an expectation that you would worship the emperor as a god, but if you lived under the Roman empire, it was required of you under the law in order to do so. And there were consequences for breaking that law. And there were also ways in which the Romans, including the the government officials, could tell whether or not you were actually worshiping, because they would hold these regular religious feasts and gatherings, and that's where people would gather, kind of like a worship service, to worship the emperor and to worship the other pagan gods of Rome. And so many of the Christians basically had a line drawn in the sand for them. Do we attend those religious feasts or not? Knowing that if we do, we're participating in the worship, or at least the process of the worship of the Roman emperor. So many Christians during that time, the faithful ones came to the conclusion that that's a violation of my faith and so I will not worship the emperor in that way. Now Christians living under these rules recognize that these events, and and if they didn't attend these events, there were consequences that would be brought on their heads. Typically these consequences were financial at first. That's why there's a lot of emphasis on the kind of economic allure that the woman provides in this vision. But they were financial at first. In other words, they would be fined for a first offense, and if they persisted, they would continue to be fined and maybe get to the place where they would lose their jobs. And if they owned a business, they would lose their business. They might even, if they still refused to worship after all of that, be imprisoned, as John himself was imprisoned, or even killed as a result. So when these visions present to us the difference between worshiping the beast and worshiping the lamb, really throughout the book of Revelation, these are, uh, these are realities that the everyday church was dealing with in the first century. They're everyday realities for them. So a couple chapters back when we saw the mark of the beast and it said that anyone who did not receive the mark of the beast and worship the beast was not able to buy or sell. That's literally referring to everyday reality for Christians in the first century. Because if they didn't worship the beast and they weren't marked out as people who worshipped the emperor, the emperor would not allow them to buy and sell because they couldn't have a job and they couldn't have a business to buy and sell with. And so they ended up in those cases, losing their livelihood and possibly their freedom. And so faced with that reality, many of the Christians were just going along with the culture, knowing that if we can just continue, we'll we'll just attend those worship feasts and it won't really own our hearts and all those kinds of things, and they were compromising and justifying and all these kinds of things, and we can still keep our jobs, we can still continue to buy the things we need, and we can, in some cases, actually live in luxury. Well, visions like this uh, confront that With the reality that if you end up joining yourself to those things, they will end up owning your hearts. And what they're telling the early church is, do not compromise, stay faithful. It will cost you something, as it always does to follow Jesus in the world that we live in. But in the end, it will cost you a lot more if you find yourself joined to the beast and the prostitute. And since our situation as American Christians in the 21st century is not like Christians exactly in the Roman Empire in the first century. What does this look like for us? Well, it's not as clear as necessarily not going or going to a worship feast, choosing to to go to those things. We're not compelled by law to go worship uh, our government leaders. But for us, it's more about what is going on in our hearts as a spiritual reality in terms of what we are worshiping. And I think there's another connection that kind of draws us into recognizing what this looks like in a, a little bit more of a direct way in terms of what we experience, and it's fr- and it comes from the book of Daniel. We've said earlier that the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel have a lot of connections to them. In fact, in a lot of ways, we're to see the book of Revelation from the context of the book of Daniel. And in Revelation chapter 17, actually, there are more references to the book of Daniel than any other chapter in the entire book. Several references from Daniel 7, and a few references from Daniel chapter 4 as well. And so I think, among other things, what God is it is causing us to see, or what, what is being brought to mind, is the example of Daniel. How did Daniel respond in a very similar situation to what we find ourselves in? So I think there's a lot that we can learn from Daniel's example as we live in a world that is often dominated by the beast and his dragon, or the dragon and his beast, I should say. First of all, recognize that you are an exile. I know that we like to say, and what that means is that we understand that this world is not our home. We do not live here, we're passing through as exiles on the way to our home. And I know we like to say as Christians a lot, this world is not my home, and we say those things, and then um, many times we get tempted into actually believing that this is our home by the way that we live. I mean, In other words, if we trace the way that we live, the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money, it probably says a lot more about the fact that we consider this world our home rather than the world that's to come. I'm just being honest, I think that has a lot to say about where our hearts may be. And that tells the real story. When I think about this, for whatever reason, I don't know if this is gonna be helpful or not, but for whatever reason, a college dorm room comes to mind. I have always found college dorm rooms kind of depressing, right? Because you walk in, you walk into a college dorm room, especially when you move in, and it's this old room that smells really musty. I mean, where, and you have this little bed, and it's way too small for the space that you have to be really a living space at all. And, um, and, it's, and it's really sterile and kind of all that stuff, right? And you walk in, you realize there's a bed that a hundred other people have slept on before you and now that's gonna be your bed for the next couple of years or a year or so and it's just kind of a temporary place, right? But we try to do everything we can to make it feel like home because it's so sterile and weird and foreign. So we bring our bedding from our, from, our, from our bedroom or maybe our favorite blanket and we put it on the bed, you know, and that feels a little bit more like our bed from home. And uh, I said this in first service and some people looked at me blankly, but uh, like I remember when I moved in, I took like posters from my bedroom and put them on the wall to make it feel more like my bedroom from home. I don't know if people still put posters on their walls, but if they do that, that's kind of one way. Well, we do all these things to make it feel like it is home for us, when in reality, we know that it's not. It's a temporary place, and in the end, it's still a dorm room that is not really home. But we dress it up in so many ways to make it feel like home. But like that's sometimes what we do if we are Christians grounding ourselves and binding ourselves to this world, trying to dress this world up as if it were our home. It's like a sad little dorm room where there's like Ikea furniture just shoved in every kind of corner that wasn't really put together right and it's falling apart over there. Can't quite hold the weight of the lamp up because it wasn't put together right. It was missing a couple screws. But in the end, the churches of Revelation needed to remember that the Roman Empire wasn't their home and Caesar was not their king. And we need to remember that the earth is not our home and the kings, uh, the kings and kingdoms of this world are not our home. We are exiles in this world waiting for a homeland. Secondly, an example that we see from Daniel is that he cherished God. You know, cherishing God is simply about how much we value him. And you see in Daniel's example, specifically when he was faced with the direct decision of valuing God and praying to God under Babylonian law that prevented him from doing that, that he chose to value God, not only above the laws of the day and the laws of the land, but he valued and cherished God more than he cherished his own life because it cost him, it, it, it threatened to cost him his life. And a lot of us have an unspoken line in the sand when it comes to our relationship with God. Like, I'll sacrifice all of this God but this one thing right here or these two things or these three things I, yeah, and we won't say it but it's there and even as I say it some of you pop into mind right away. There are a few things that if I'm honest if push came to shove it'd be really difficult to sacrifice that to cherish God and the question becomes where that line exists is typically where idolatry is taking root in our lives. What are we placing that is more important than cherishing God? And then cherishing God feeds into the next thing, seeking to please God. You know, Daniel honored God by seeking to please him rather than to please people, even rather than to please himself. Um, We all remember Daniel in the lion's den, right? That was a result of wanting to please God more than he wanted to please himself or to please others. And it goes with number two from above. If you cherish God more than anything, you'll want to please God more than anything, even if it means giving up our lives because we have the life of Christ instead. Number four, Daniel guarded his heart. In Daniel chapter one, we're told that while Daniel was in exile in Babylon, right, he was brought to the king's table and the king said to him, you can, have, you, can, you can eat the exact same meal that we're eating. In other words, you can have the finest steak probably in the entire planet and you can have some of the best wine drink and eat from the king's table, right? In other words, here's a five-star meal that's laid out before Daniel and basically told Daniel, "You you can have whatever you want, enjoy it. It's a part of the feast that we're providing for you. And Daniel could have easily compromised in that case, but what he knew is that that violated God's food laws for the Jews. And so he decided not to eat. Instead, he went on a vegetable diet, which just hurts my heart to reject. But anyway, this is Daniel's thing, Right? glad for him. But at the same time, like I feel the sacrifice in this specifically. That Daniel said, I won't eat of the king's table. Instead, I'm not going to compromise my faith. My conviction is to trust in the Lord. And look, nobody would have blamed Daniel in that situation. All the other Jews were eating all of the king's food and all the Babylonian food. They weren't obeying the food laws. After all, they were in exile. Daniel had all kinds of ways to rationalize just going and enjoying that medium rare ribeye that was in front of him. And yet he decided that his conviction, his desire to cherish and to please God was more important. And nothing else mattered above that. And then finally, Daniel lived from the kingdom of God. Daniel found himself in a very powerful position in the kingdom of Babylon as the lead advisor to the most powerful man on the planet, King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel didn't seek it, but God placed him there. It's kind of like, you know, if a refugee somehow ascended to the chief of staff or the president of the United States, I mean, that's how dramatic his rise was, and it was obvious that God put him there. And it is true that as Christians we are exiles, but we are also ambassadors for the kingdom. Called to speak to the world for our king, and called to speak hope and good news. As we go back to Matthew chapter 24, in the midst of all that is happening, Jesus says, and the good news, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and to all nations. And of course, who does that? Whose calling is that? Whose responsibility is that? Whose role is that? It's the church. It's God's people to be ambassadors to the ends of the earth. So we live from the kingdom so that we can represent the good news of the kingdom and speak the good news of the kingdom to the world. Look, I'll finish by saying this. As we overlay Daniel's faithful example with the call to be faithful in Revelation, it's what we worship and what we serve ultimately. And this is the real issue behind it. Where do we put our trust? What do we love? And what do we prioritize? And with that in mind, I want to bring this to a real world example and kind of tie everything together that we were talking about earlier. I want to read to you some words that I read this past week from an article uh, that was written by a pastor in Ukraine. And he was talking about how he and his church were responding to what was going on uh, all around them. And I think what it does, it does a couple of things. First of all, he highlights Jesus' ultimate victory as well as I think it's a, it's, it's a really a strong challenge to us as believers as we consider what it means to live faithfully and following Jesus in all things. He says, this is Benjamin Morrison, a pastor in Ukraine. He writes this, The enemy and those tyrants who serve him would love to sow fear, panic, and despair. But he is also the father of lies. In this case, the lie is that someone other than Christ is king. The depraved man, a mind of man would like to believe and have others believe that he can control fates and lives and nations and so on. But there is only one who controls the flow of history. And he quotes Psalm 103, 19, which says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And then this is his personal reflection on that. But that's not always easy to remember when bombs are exploding all around you. The noise of the lie can get loud, so the truth needs to go deeper. We called an impromptu evening for worship and prayer for Ukraine uh, with our church. It was a sweet time stirring one another up and singing the truth deep into our hearts, that there is only one true king, and the little tyrants of the world will ultimately play into his great victory. His promises are sure, his victory inevitable. There's one line that sticks out to me that I really love about what he said. He said, the noise of the lie can get loud, so the truth needs to go deeper. If you remember one thing about this chapter, I think that's exactly what Revelation 17 is saying. It starts out with this loud, with this loud lie, this, this woman who is adorned in all these things that, 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 that lies and that, 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 that allures people, that, that intoxicates people. And yet in order to see past the lie, the truth has to go deeper. And that's what the second part of Revelation 17 is. The angel kind of pulls John aside and says, look, let me tell you about the truth that goes deeper than that lie that is often so loud and in our face. And as the beast screams and barks in the face of people all around the world, including those in Ukraine, even this morning, the reminder is that the truth goes deeper. That Jesus is king and his victory is sure. And look, um, whether or not those of us in this room will ever face a situation like what the Christians faced in the first century under the Roman Empire, where their faith would cost them their livelihood or would cost them their lives under the law, or whether or not we will find ourselves in a situation like Daniel, where we're literally in, in, in exile under the law of a foreign nation and trying to live your faith in the midst of that, Or whether we find ourselves in a situation like what is going on in Ukraine where bombs are literally exploding all around us and chaos is reigning and we're trying to focus on the fact that Jesus is in control of it all. I don't know whether any of us will find ourselves in any of those kinds of situations in our lifetime. It's impossible to say what effect the beast and the prostitute will have on each generation, on each nation. I think to say that is just to speculate and that can be dangerous, especially in places like this. But I would say this, no matter where we find ourselves, the calling is still the same. To remain faithful to Jesus amidst all the idols that we are tempted with. You know, John Calvin once said that our hearts are like idol factories. So the question is not whether you and I have idols in our hearts, the question is which idols are those that God wants to expose and that God wants to root out of our hearts. And I will say this, although we would never wish for persecution or threats of dictators, and we should be thankful that we don't face that kind of persecution like so many Christians have throughout history, like so many Christians do currently throughout the world. There is a danger in never having our faith tested in this way, and it's this. It's the danger of complacency. It's the danger of convenience. It's the danger of being comfortable. It's the danger of a slumbering and nominative faith that can easily pass for the real thing when it isn't really tested. You know, over this past year we faced as the american church as close as we can get to some kind of you know challenge to our faith test to our faith and what we found is that the american church has lost about 30 to 40% of in its attendance over the past 2 years simply because in most cases it's become less convenient to make it to church millions of american christians have decided that their engagement with church can just lift right out of their lives and nothing else changes they just go on with the way that they were living in the way that they continue to live. And look, there's something wrong with that. And I'm not saying that coming to church, is that you need to come to church in order to be a Christian, or that coming to church saves you. But what I will say is that true Christian faith is expressed in living and being an active part of the local church body. It's part of the fruit of faithfulness that's bound up in all of this. And I think it would be foolish or blind to say that a decline in church engagement is not indicative in some way of our failing faith as the American church. I mean, when you think about it this way, when you have a church in Ukraine who is doing everything they can to find a place to meet together, and they're worshiping with, with with the sounds of bombs, drowning out their worship as they're trying to sing and as they're trying to pray and as they're trying... To teach one another the scriptures and read the scriptures out loud, and they're doing everything that they can to meet in that place in the midst of the reality we're facing. And then we come to the other side of the world, and you know, we'll go to church if there's nothing else on the agenda. There's something wrong with that. It's a red flag. I don't know exactly what it is. I'm not the judge of your heart or your faithfulness. Um, that's way above my pay grade. But what what my job is, is to tell you the truth as clearly and as honestly as I can. And I'll say this, that the business of your heart is the business that you and God do together by his spirit. And so whatever that looks like for you this morning, I hope it challenges you and encourages you in the right way. And we're going to close by way of response this morning in singing a song a song that many of you may be familiar with. It's relatively new for us. I think we've sung it a few times at least in here. It's a song called Firm Foundation. And what I love about this song is that it's a declaration. It's a declaration on two, on two parts. It's a declaration of the faithfulness and the victory of Jesus in saying that he won't let us down, that his victory is sure. And it's a declaration of saying that I will trust in that no matter what is swirling around me, no matter what is, what is crumbling around me, no matter what is shaking around me, maybe even literally, the ground is being shaken beneath my feet, but I will not be shaken in the firm foundation and the faith that I have in Jesus. And here's the thing, no matter how God is dealing with you in your heart, I find one of the, great, one of the best ways to enter into communion with God and to allow the Spirit to do His work in us is to just make a declaration and to, and to worship. I, I think as, as, the, as the pastor said there, he said, it was a sweet time of stirring one another up and singing the truth deep into our hearts. Singing the truth deep into our hearts. I love that phrase as well. And so as we close this morning, I want you to sing deeply the truth into your heart, the declaration that we'll sing in these words. We're pray for us. And then after I'm done praying, I invite you to stand up as we sing and close out together. Lord, we come to you this morning with heavy hearts on behalf of those who are struggling and suffering and fearful and uncertain about their future, and those who are undergoing, even now as we speak, bombings in their cities because of an evil dictator who wants to assert his will. And Father, we pray for your grace and mercy. Lord, we know that your word tells us that you guide the hearts of kings, And we ask in this moment, Lord, that you would turn back the aggression of Russia against Ukraine. We ask, Lord, that all the prognosticators and all the worst fears that have been talked about over the past days would not come to pass. But that, Lord, you would show up in a mighty and miraculous way and turn the tide of this aggression and this threat We pray for protection for those within Ukraine. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to fill them with the courage that that they have shown so far and that they wouldn't lose heart, they wouldn't lose faith. Pray specifically for those brothers and sisters who are remaining in the nation in the midst of harm's way because they are the church and the church needs to be in a place where people are broken and looking for hope. And they have a deep conviction in their hearts that that's where they need to be and that's where they're called to be, even though they put their lives in danger. We ask that you would protect them, Lord, and that you would give them courage in their witness and boldness in their witness to speak of the hope that they have to the world. And Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself in an awful, horrible, evil situation. That you would bring healing to heartache. And Lord, that your will would be brought to pass that we would see peace take place as a reality, even before our eyes. Would you guide those with wisdom, with peace, who seek you. Father, be glorified in all of it. We admit that we see through a mirror dimly. And Lord, the things that are on our hearts are not always the things that are on your heart. But Father, you tell us to come to you with our hearts laid open. And so we offer these petitions to you, knowing that you hear us, and trusting that in the end, you will do what is good and right and faithful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. King of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen.
0: Steve and
1: Catherine Plum are our uh, prayer partners for, for this service. And so if you need someone to pray with you immediately following the service, they would be happy to pray with you as we leave this morning. We also have prayer request cards that are located on the table with a cross on the back as you leave here this morning. If you would like us to be praying for you in any way, uh, for yourself, your family, maybe a co-worker, whatever it may be, Uh, We look forward to praying for you. We we consider that an opportunity to bear burdens with you in prayer, and so we pray over those as a staff, as a prayer team, and as an elder team every week. So if you would submit your prayer requests there and then drop them over in the offering stands as you leave here this morning, we'll make sure they get to the right place. But I think for all of us, we need to continue to pray for Ukraine, pray for peace peace. And pray in the end that God would be glorified, that he, his wisdom and mercy would be displayed all over that place. And especially for our brothers and sisters who are there, that they would maintain a faithful and courageous witness in the midst of, of threat and danger. On this so, love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.